I love when we sing songs, and I, I love to pay attention to the words. I, I hope that you do. Um, the words that we sing, uh, I, I, listen, I've been around a, a long time, and I know that this afternoon you will not be rehearsing my three points. You should, but you won't. Rather, you will be singing songs that caught your attention or something like that. And so the words that we sing are very, very important. And um, th- th- there's a line in there um, that says, now hear my absolution. Does anybody, anybody notice that? Anybody here raised Catholic? Just kind of curious. Okay. Does that, does that kind of bother you? That now, now hear my absolution? Here's what I want you to know. It's not now hear, H-E-A-R. It's now hear, H-E-R-E. That changes the whole meaning. It makes it right. See, within the Catholic Church, there is a sacrament called penance. This is not in my notes. I have all kinds of time because we didn't have baptism. Sit back. We're going to be a while. (laughs) There is this sacrament called penance, and it is required that in order for you to um, be forgiven of your sin, you confess your sin to the priest who would then grant what? Absolution. Hmm. The Protestant reformers came along and said, oh, no, 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 no. A man doesn't grant absolution. It comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and him alone. So it's not hear my confession so that I can get absolution. Now here in this salvation is my absolution. I am absolved of my sin. Isn't that great? Okay. Anyway. That's just, I love words. I got lots of them. So this week... Um, I was in the office actually preparing uh, the sermon for this morning. Sue Waters, who volunteers in the front office, was telling me that her sister Joanna, who also goes to our church, they were both here last service, who also goes to our church, is going to Jerusalem to teach history for an entire year. The morning, she's going to be gone a year. Sue said, I told her that's no problem. Mark 14 has 72 verses in it. Whatever. That has nothing to do with my sermon. I just thought I'd let you know that others think the same way you do. If you've been a Christian for any period of time, you know that there have been many spurious, fanciful, and even crazy interpretations of the Bible through the years. Some, to call, some that cause you to shake your head in disbelief. In his book, Exegetical Fallacies, Dr. D.A. Carson gives this humorous anecdote to demonstrate how some approach biblical interpretation. The piece is entitled, Why Are Fire Engines Red? Well, that's easy, he says. They have four wheels and eight men. Four plus eight is 12. 12 inches makes a ruler. A ruler is Queen Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth sells the seven seas. The, the seven seas have fish. The fish have fins. The fins hate the Russians. The Russians are red. Fire engines are always Russian, so they're red. What exactly did that say? (laughs) Who knows? But it is unfortunate that many approach Bible interpretation just that way, making connections that are not there, assigning meanings that are not there, searching for secrets behind the natural and obvious meaning of the text, applying numerical codes to expose hidden meanings. Listening to them makes you feel like you need this bestseller, The Complete Idiot's Guide to the Bible, or its companion, The Bible for Dummies. As a result, we arrive at interpretations that neither the human author 
nor the divine author, that is the Holy Spirit, ever intended. You ever notice when you read between the lines in the Scripture, there's nothing there? (laughs) The point of all that is the obvious reading of the text is usually the right meaning of the text. It's not to say that we should not be involved in Uh, Bible study to plumb its glorious depths. I believe that there is inexhaustible value to the Word of God, and we should commit our lives to learning and growing by it. But we must apply simple biblical hermeneutics. Hermeneutics simply is the science of biblical interpretation, meaning that we must try to understand what the author meant without inventing crazy stuff. We must be careful about coming up with things that no one Uh, ever thought of before. Listen, if you come up with an interpretation that no one ever has, you're probably wrong. I have challenged us over the past few weeks in our study of the Olivet Discourse to take the clear and obvious meaning of the text. Complex, spurious, fanciful interpretations are found most often in prophetic passages like this. Never is that more true than the Olivet Discourse and the particular passage that we arrive at today, Mark 13, verses 28 to 31. And as we read the text, you're going to find that these are familiar verses. And we're going to uh, have to clear up some clutter, some things that you've maybe heard before, and deal with the clear meaning of the text and leave the red fire engines behind. Read it with me. Mark chapter 13, verse 28 says... Now, learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Are you kidding me? Doesn't that get you excited? It has a lot of prophecy mongers through the years. Even, even so, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. This is getting exciting. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So I don't know if you realize it or not, but we have a significant problem in this text. I mean, what is this fig fig tree that Jesus is talking about? And what are these things that will happen? And who or what is standing at the door? And and during whose generation could it it be ours? And, And who or how long is a generation Why is this a problem? Well, some have suggested that Jesus in this text just plain got it wrong. That indeed his words have passed into error. Others have come up with fanciful, uh, with all kinds of crazy interpretations for this fig tree or or these things or this generation just to fix Jesus. To fix the text. Or to support their system of prophecy. As I suggested a couple of weeks ago, it is this passage, uh, among others, that caused British philosopher and atheist Bertrand Russell to write, Why I Am Not a Christian. He thought Jesus got it wrong right here. Can't be God. I know you're sitting there going, It doesn't appear to be that hard. And how in the world is Scott going to get a whole sermon out of that? No problem. Um, (laughs) But know that we have to navigate some very deep waters on this family worship Sunday. The first family worship Sunday, Jesus 
got mad at and killed a fig tree. This one he's going to give the parable of the fig tree. We've got a fig tree theme going um, on here. We must remember that Jesus is answering two of his disciples' questions, namely, when will these things be? That is, when is the temple going to be destroyed? And what will be the sign of your coming? That is, when are you coming back? Jesus gives this extended answer, the longest uh, speech, if you will, sermon in the Gospel of Mark, known as the Olivet Discourse. And then one of the first things that he wanted to do was to clear up some misconceptions of the disciples, which is interesting because we have successfully used his clearing things up to come up with our own misconceptions. He says, listen, guys, there are going to be lots of things along the way, things that will point to the coming destruction of the temple. But listen, these are just the beginning of birth pangs. The end is not yet. You will hear and experience, you know, false Christs and wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines. And you're going to be delivered over to tribulation and persecution. And those disciples were. And I'm suggesting not only that, that my followers throughout history are going to experience much the same thing that's going to cause them to long for his coming. But the end is not yet. But, 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 but you disciples, the ones he's talking to, you're going to see the sign, the precursor of the destruction known as the abomination of desolation. Lots of discussion as to, whether, as to what that was and whether there will be another one before his coming. I think perhaps there might be based on Daniel chapter 9, but this one clearly is talking about the destruction of the temple. If there's any doubt. Luke 21 clears it up. When you see the Roman armies surrounding Jerusalem, you'll know its desolation is near. Flee. Flee to the mountains. The abomination of desolation was somehow associated with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Lots of discussion. Not going to get into it. Again, he says, false Christ and false prophets will continue to arise so as to mislead the elect. Don't worry about it. That won't be possible. I will take care of my elect. But here's... Another misconception. These two events, the, the destruction of the temple and my return, they are not the same thing. They are separated by at least a couple of thousand years now. And that bothers some people. We'll come back to that. So the sign for the destruction was the abomination. You want to know the sign of my, uh, what the sign of my coming will be? We looked at that last week. You'll know it when you see it. There are going to be cosmic disturbances. After that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from the heavens, the power in heaven will be shaken. When you observe these cataclysmic, cosmic, supernatural wonders, you're going to know. When you observe, uh, when you see the, uh, the sign of the Son of Man appear in the sky, you'll know. When you see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, then you'll know. When you hear the trumpet, Matthew adds, then you'll know. And when you see the angels of God gather the elect from the four corners of, uh, of heaven and from all over heaven such that not one is missing, then you'll know. You will not miss the coming of Christ and neither will anyone else. Make no mistake about it, everyone is going to know. And so some will rejoice, most will mourn. So, learn then the parable of the fig tree, which brings us to our text this morning. Before we jump into it, let me give you a very simple outline. We're going to see the rather elusive uh, parable of the fig tree, and then 
the meaning of the fig tree and then the certainty of, uh, 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 excuse me, the meaning of the parable and the certainty of the parable. I mean, let's start with the parable of the fig tree, verse 28, which will be followed, please notice, by Jesus' interpretation in verses 28 and 20. I mean, we don't have to come up, we don't have to invent interpretation. Jesus gives it to us right in the text. This is where it gets a little squirrely, though, and I do need to do some teaching, so hold on. Jesus is answering the when question. When will these things be, and how will we know it? He set them straight by saying there will be lots of things to, to point to the coming destruction, but the end is not yet. So, I'm suggesting, he says, learn the parable of the fig tree. When you see its branches becoming tender, starting to leaf out, you will know that summer is near. Now, the question is, if he's answering both of those questions, to what does the fig tree parable point? To the coming of destruction or the coming of Christ? Which one? Well, for almost 70 years now, there have been those who have speculated that the fig tree in this parable is actually Israel. And when Israel achieved statehood, that is when they became a nation in 1948, this parable was being fulfilled. The fig tree was putting forth its leaves and this generation, that is the generation alive, when Israel became a nation in 1948, would not pass away until Jesus came back. <laughs> yeah. Um, a, a generation was seen as 40 years, which is why, by the way, so many people thought Jesus would had to come back by 1988. That was a big guess year. Remember that? 88 reasons for the rapture in 88? All that? In, in case you haven't noticed, 1988 has come and gone. Which means either a generation is longer than 40 years, it's not. Or the fig tree is not Israel, it's not. Or the generation that Jesus was talking about was not the, the last generation until his return, it's not. In other words, we have sadly, grossly misinterpreted this parable. I'm just, just out of curiosity, how many of you have heard that before? This parable refers to Israel becoming a nation... Um, in 1948. How many of you have heard that, right? Yeah, that was really popular back when I was gr growing up. He's coming. Can I tell you that I do not know of one credible biblical scholar who holds that position now? <laughs> not one. <laughs> they all mention it and they talk about how ridiculous it was. It is a perfect example of reading a current event back into the pages of Scripture. Let me tell you very clearly, the fig tree is not Israel. Jesus never referred to Israel as a fig tree. The parable of the fig tree is rather straightforward, quite simple, but there are some things that we need to clear up, some clutter that we need to clear out. We've talked about the fig tree before. It was, it was used throughout Scripture for analogies because it was grown in abundance in Israel. People grew them in their yards, in fig groves. They, they even grew along the side of the road, to include the one that Jesus killed. It was an important agricultural commodity. Everyone knew about fig trees. So Jesus took this common, everyday item, a tree, laid it alongside a, a, uh, a spiritual truth to illuminate that truth. That's what a parable does. When you see the fig tree... Uh, when you see its branches get tender because of the rising of the sap, when you see it start to leaf out, what do you know? 
Summer is almost here. That's it. That's the simple meaning of the parable. To make specific assignments to the fig tree or the leaves or the summer or even a generation is to take it beyond what Jesus said. I would say it this way, just, just by way of illustration, since the dogwood is one of my favorite trees. When you see those beautiful white blooms, you know, don't we, that summer's right around the corner. Exactly. We're not left to wonder. In verses 29 and 30, Jesus explains the parable. The parable. So also, when you see all of these things happen, stop right there. That's the challenge. What are all these things? Well, the, the, the disciples use that phrase back in verse 4 when they ask, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? Then in verse 8, uh, Jesus uses these things to say that these are merely the beginning of birth pangs. What things? Well, all of those things that happened up until the destruction of the temple. And frankly, I've suggested beyond. Wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, persecutions. These, remember, must take place, but they're not the signs. They're simply the beginning of birth pangs, pointing to the destruction of Jerusalem. So when you see these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Now that's another problem, see. That, that's confusing. He is right at the door? I mean, is that referring to, to Jesus in the second coming? I mean, after all, Scott, you said, you've been saying that those things primarily to the destruction, not his coming, but he's right at the door. There's the problem. If it refers to his coming, you see, he did not come within a generation of his listeners. He didn't come within a generation of Israel becoming a nation. So... Ergo, Jesus must have been wrong. Not exactly. You see, the word he can be, and I'm going to argue, should be translated it. And it actually depends on your interpretation of the text. So, it really should be translated when it is near, right at the door. So if we translate that, it is coming, that would be referring rightly to the destruction of the temple. That is a viable and I think a more reasonable translation. In fact, I think the chapter could be and should be outlined this way. This is the way I've taught it, frankly. It's the, the coming destruction of, te- of the temple in verses uh, 1 to 23, and, and, uh, and then the coming of Christ, verses 24 to 27. Then the parable concerning the destruction of the temple, the verses we just are, uh, read and are in, and then a parable concerning the coming of Christ next week. Now, if you're taking notes, you will notice that I have slightly adjusted that from my introduction of Mark 13 a few weeks ago. It's just a little minor adjustment. Sue me. Um, it's basically, basically the same. The point is, Jesus says in verses 29 and 30, when you see all these things, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. That presents this interpretive challenge. And these verses, again, have caused countless people through the centuries to to try to identify the signs. Is that a leaf? (laughs) No, no, how about this one? Must mean that Christ is coming in our generation. People have always thought, to include the disciples, have always thought that Jesus would come in their generation. And in a sense, they were right. He could have come in their generation. He could come in ours. The precursors, the leaves are all around us, and we need to be prepared. That is, after all, the purpose of the discourse. Be ready. 
but we take things too far. This passage has been notoriously difficult to translate. So some have suggested, again, Jesus mistaken, got it wrong. Since he doesn't know the day or the hour he was coming back, we'll look at that next week, he just assumed it would be soon, and this generation, that is the generation of the disciples, would be alive at his second coming. They weren't. He was wrong. Does that cause a problem for anyone else besides me? I mean, if Jesus was wrong about that, what else was he wrong about? Again, we're going to talk next week about him not knowing the time of his return, but, but let me assure you, Jesus did not make a mistake. Rather, I believe we have. We've misinterpreted this parable. We've made it say things it does not say. The key to interpreting the passage falls in two understandings. First, what is these things referring to? And second, who is this generation? Tons of interpretation, but let me review two of the most prominent ones before we look at the most obvious, I think, straightforward approach. Again, I've kind of covered this already, but I'm going to make sure that we get it because this is a problem text. And again, we're going to stay away from fire engines today. You may remember when we began the Olivet Discourse, I said that there were basically three, maybe four approaches to interpreting the discourse. One is called the preterist approach, which I know some of you hold. That's fine. It teaches, the preterist approach teaches that everything that Jesus talked about in Mark 13 was fulfilled by 70 AD. You should know that the reason they hold that is because of these verses. This is what they say. Jesus said all these things, which must refer to everything that he's talked about up to this point, verses 5 to 30, will take place before this generation passes away. It did by 70 AD, which happened to be 40 years later when Jerusalem was destroyed. So they say, verses 24 to 27, which we looked at last week, isn't talking about the second coming, but Jesus coming in judgment on the nation of Israel, specifically Jerusalem, for their rejection of him. So this generation refers to this generation of disciples. Obviously, I don't hold totally that view since I taught last week that verses 24 to 27 are talking about the second coming. The second view is the futurist view. And usually you fall into one of these two categories. The futurist view teaches that much, if not all, of what Jesus talked about in Mark 13 is still future. Yes, they say, there have been wars and rumors of wars, but earthquakes, famines, but nothing like what's going to happen near the end. So also that abomination of desolation will take place in the future, in the middle of the seven-year tribulation as per Daniel chapter 9. And, and also the events of 24 to 27 are speaking of the future second coming. So for them, all these things refer to the future, and this generation is a future generation, whenever that is, which will see the coming of Christ, whenever they see that all of this taking place. Maybe. Maybe. Might be right. The other one might be right too. And neither one are heretical. Can I say that? I personally don't think either of them are completely right. So let's take, I think, a look at the most straightforward, obvious approach. In verse 30, Jesus says, when you see these things, then you will know he, rather it, is near. What is these things? It is the events of verses 4 to 23, which I've described, he described as birth pains, which took place till 70 AD and beyond throughout the church age, false Christ, 
rumors of war, war, rumors of war, earthquakes, famines, being handed over to tribulation, the abomination of desolation leading to the destruction of the temple. Now, I, I know some people are bothered that I say the abomination of desolation happened by 70 AD. I'm not saying that there's not going to be a future one. Some people are bothered. Some have even left the church because of the way I'm teaching Mark 13. I'm doing the best I can. And there are good and there are good and godly scholars on both sides of this issue. And none of it has anything to do with, with whether or not we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture and the value of Scripture. Doing the best job we can. So, verse 30. This generation will not pass away until all things are fulfilled. All what things? The road signs along the way to include, I think, the abomination. I know this is really more detailed than you actually wanted, especially on this family worship Sunday. <laughs> but trust me, this has been the source of endless vitriol and debate. When you see the abomination, this generation will not pass away until the temple is destroyed. This generation, I believe, is the generation to whom Jesus was talking, the generation of the disciples. You see, the words, those specific words, this generation, are, are, are used two other times in Mark's gospel, chapter 8, if you want to look it up, uh, to refer to the present generation to whom Jesus was speaking. This generation, that makes sense. And it fits with the way that I, we've, inter we've interpreted Mark 13. Disciples. You will not pass away until you personally see everything that I've talked about. All these things take place. You're going to see the destruction of Jerusalem. You're going to see the birth pangs. So be prepared. And not only will you see them, but I think so will every generation following you. We've said it before. The second coming has been and always has been right around the corner. It's always been the next thing on the prophetic calendar. He could have come um, right after 70 A.D., 1,900 years ago. He could come today. He could come later. We, 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 will, we will see these things and long for Christ and should be prepared. That's the point. We're not, we're not supposed to be guessing. And I would even add we're not supposed to be irritable because yeah, I don't cross every T and dot every I like someone else. Supposed to be prepared and looking for his return from the first generation who saw all the signs to our current generations who continue to see the signs. The last generation will see these signs. Jesus is coming back. Be prepared. Which brings us to a third point, frankly, our conclusion. Always be prepared because, Jesus says, of the certainty of my words. Regardless of how you read and interpret this chapter. This you can know for sure. Write it down. Jesus is coming back. Heaven and earth will pass away. My word never will. Lots of passages that talk about uh, the, the present earth and uh, heaven and earth passing away. But the point is, all of creation, all of the created universe will pass away, but my word never will. Will. Do you understand the authority with which Jesus is speaking? He says, my word is more sure than the entire universe. Write it down. And so, here we are, 
2,000 years after Jesus ascended, and he said, he's coming back. And just like Peter said, 2 Peter chapter 3, people have always ignored the warnings. We can fix this broken planet. Have they? We can fix famines. Have they? We can fix wars. Have they? We can fix earthquakes. At least know when they're coming to minimize the destruction. Have they? Where is this coming uh, that, that he promised? They scoff. For everything remains the sa- just the same like it was since in the days of our fathers. You guys are nuts to believe this stuff. And the sun will come in judgment and sweep them all away. Do not misinterpret his not coming for 2,000 years as a failure. He will come. To him, in the flow of Second Peter, to him a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. Time is not relevant. And his not coming yet is not a failure to keep the promise, he says. Rather, it is a demonstration of his patience, because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If Jesus has not come today, it's because he is wishing, he is willing that others would come to repentance, and he's left us the responsibility of sharing that with people. If you're alive today, it's so that you can share good news with people, because... There is coming a day when the last person to be saved will be saved and Jesus will come. Therefore, Jesus says to his disciples of all ages, be ready. Be on the alert. Be prepared. I want to remind you in closing this morning that the purpose of knowing that Jesus is coming back is not to try and figure it all out. Not to try and guess when. Let's stop chasing the fire truck. The purpose of this discourse is to remind us to be ready. He's coming. Are you prepared? Stand for prayer. Father, this indeed is a notoriously complex, difficult text because we've made it so. We've tried to to, to figure it all out. Forgetting Jesus' words, it is not for you to know the times or the epochs. We've tried to dot every I and cross every T. And and, and I think there are some things that you reveal to us in the Scripture. But, 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 But the bottom line is you're coming back You're coming back for your bride. You're coming back for the saved. You're coming back for the church. And and, and we will be gathered together to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with him. We will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. And and the dead who have have gone before us will will be raised first. We celebrate that glorious truth. Help us to, to invite others to join us. In a way, we're, we're not just left here to, to, to only long for the return of Christ. We are left here to long for and invite others to long with us to look for the return of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.